0: Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as your family. We've been reminded of that this morning. Sitting behind us and in front of us to our sides is our family members. It is the people we will spend eternity with. Loving our Lord and loving each other in perfect relationships. Lord, we long for that day, but till... You return, Lord Jesus. We will serve you and we will live as a family together. We will care for one another and pray for one another. Strive to meet each other's needs, Lord. And so we pray that you continue to bring unity. You love unity. You hate disunity. But you love unity. So continue to bind our hearts together through the word of God and our glorious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the word of God. Now as we turn to it, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us. We thank you that we are not alone in the proclamation of this truth. There are many, many churches and missionaries around the world that proclaim this same truth we are proclaiming this morning. So we pray not only here but around the world that your word will continue to go out and be the standard of truth, and that we will come to it and believe it as truth, and it would change our lives, Lord. It is a great blessing. It is a great honor to look in your word together now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's a busy morning with new members and the Lord's table here, and so uh, I will not be re- studying that whole passage that John uh, Nero read this morning, but we will look at the first three verses. If you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 10, verse 32 through 34 will be the text that we will look at. Excuse me, Mark 10, 34. I'm going to be in John too. Um, Sorry. Mark chapter 10, 32 through 34. John Newton was a slave trader. Many of you know him uh, mainly by the song or the words of a song that he wrote Amazing Grace. John Newton was a vile man by his own omission. But Christ saved him, and he became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he knew that it was a battle. And he wrote these words, he said this, I am not what I ought to be. This was after he was saved. I am not what I ought to be, and I am not what I want to be. I'm not even what I hope to be. But by the cross of Christ, I I am not what I was. What a great statement. He desires to be more like Christ, and he knows he's not there yet. And his hope is in something greater than what he is right now. What a blessing that is to think of that. And yet, by the cross of Christ, I'm not what I used to be. I'm part of God's family. D.A. Carson recently said this in a sermon. He said, there is nothing that inspires our gratitude and awe more than the love shown us by the eternal Son of God on the cross. It is the world's greatest statement of love. There is no greater statement as we look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And studying this passage this morning and then remembering Christ through the table after we're done here in this text should bring us to great gratitude and thanksgiving. You shouldn't come to the cross of Christ, the teaching of it, the understanding of it, and not be full of gratitude and thanksgiving as a believer. And I trust God stirs your heart as we talk about these things that are so endeared to us. We study our Bibles. Think about this this morning. We study our Bibles to know our God and Savior. Not, we don't come to our Bibles as I think too much of the American church probably does today to find some little trick, some little, little note to help us get through that day or to, to buy, find some little period of happiness. Listen, brothers and sisters, we study our Bibles to know our God and Savior. That's what will give you joy. Learn to go to the Bible and say, God, what am I going to learn from you or about you today? That's what you need. You don't need a a one-verse shot of, wow, okay, great, that will get me through today. You need to know God. I need to know God. And that's why we come to the text. That's why we teach verse by verse. That's why we look at the text in its context because we need to know him, not change him into the God that we want him to be. He is sufficient in the God that he is. And I hope this morning that when we're done, just even with these three short verses, that you have a strong desire to follow him. In a great way. The parallel text of Mark chapter 10 here, particularly verses 32 through 34, is Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And Luke 18, 31 through 34. Those are the parallel texts. But as, as Mark has often done, the text that God leads Mark to record, he usually is a little more vivid in them. And again he does that. This text is a little more vivid as it explains this scene With the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at these three verses this morning. Number one, as we put down a couple of thoughts here Jesus was undeterred from the eternal plan of God. Jesus was undeterred from the eternal plan of God. Look at verse 32 with me. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what he was going what was going to happen to him. Well here as we drop into this scene Mark is now pointing out that Jesus is now headed to Jerusalem. He is actually on the road. In some of our last studies he has been in a house and he has dealt with with marriage and divorce. He's dealt with the picture of Christ-like faith like a child. He's, last week, he was trying to get out of the house and start on this trip, and the rich young ruler came to him, and he shows a great contrast between his faith and, and a saving faith. And now, as we drop into this portion, probably sometime later, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. Notice that, that it says they were traveling up to Jerusalem. Up to Jerusalem. Well, it's interesting, they're actually traveling south. Um, but in the Jewish world and in the recording of the scripture, everything is up to Jerusalem, right? And so they're coming actually south. They're coming down from, from uh, Ephraim area, and they're making their way down towards Jerusalem. They possibly have been to Bethany already and maybe have tracked around there in some ways. But now he is on the way up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was always known to be going up to it. No matter if you come south, north, east, west, going to Jerusalem, you went up. And physically, it, it is up on a hill. And so when you get there, you do climb up on it. But notice Jesus was walking on ahead of them. I want you to pick up on this with me. Only Mark mentions this term. The rest of the gospel recordings don't pick up on this, but Mark does here by the inspiration of God. Jesus walked on ahead of them. And the them, I believe, is, recording, is, is uh, talking about the 12 disciples here. And you think about this, Jesus is now out in front of them. And this is uncommon. If we study the life of Jesus, he's usually walking with his disciples. He's among them. They're surrounding him as he goes. But this text, for whatever reason, I think we're going to discover it here, says that Jesus was walking out in front of them. He's walking out in front of them. The term, was walking, is in a tense that gives an idea that he's walking with purpose. He knows where he's going. Notice the Bible says that they were amazed. The disciples were amazed. Now, if you look back in verse 24, this same word is used. Look at it, it says, the disciples were amazed at his words. So, verse 24, there's an amazement of what Jesus was saying. But in this text, brothers and sisters, listen to this, they're amazed at how he's walking. What's he up to? What is the change in this demeanor? Well, it's clear that he's on a mission. He's on a mission. He has set his chin. He has set his direction towards Jerusalem now. This is is the coming down to the final days. As you'll notice, if you look at your Bible, chapter 11, you have a triumphal entry coming. He's still going to stop and deal with his disciples and give some instruction. And he's going to deal with the blind men and all of that. But he is close and he has his sights set on a cross. The cross is before him and he is moving there. Most theologians believe that Mark's recording here is after the resurrection of Lazarus, and I think it makes sense. It seems Christ spent time kind of going back before uh, between the city of Ephraim. So if you, look at your, if you look at a map, we have Ephraim maybe about 20 miles north of uh, Jerusalem. We have Jericho to the northeast and, and he's gonna stop there and heal the blind man. Bethany's just outside of Jerusalem and he seems to be staying in this kind of quadrant right now. He's working his way around it. They're doing uh, several things there and teaching and some ministry and some healings and, and those things. But this pastor, it sees us, shows us, he's on his way now, and I think it's important to try to understand why. After Lazarus' resurrection, Jesus hid away. I want to show you this. Look at John chapter eleven. John chapter eleven. This was on my mind today, so that's why my stumble in speech there. I want you to see John, and we'll turn there together. So most people believe Lazarus has now been raised from the dead. Mark doesn't record it. Uh, John records it for us, so we have that account here. But Lazarus' resurrection caused Jesus to retreat away from the crowds, and particularly from the threat of the hostile religious leaders. And I want to show you uh, what's happening. If you drop all the way down to verse 45 we'll pick up here let me just give you some context jesus has been outside of town Um, he knew lazarus was dying remember the sisters say hey come our our brother's sick and he purposely waits what how many days yeah remember he waits several days right to make sure he's good and dead because he's going to do something no man can do and he makes his way there and of course you remember the story there he resurrects lazarus and you'll notice in oh Verse 45, many of the Jews who came to Mary after this resurrection, he tells them, unbind him, let him go. This man was dead and now he's alive. Only God could do this, showing his deity. Let him go. Verse 25, therefore, many Jews came to Mary and saw what he had done, and notice those terms, and believed him. And believed him. And I think that's some of the group that's now traveling with him in in the book of Mark. But look at verse 46. You want to know why he's in seclusion and he's coming out of that as he heads to Jerusalem look what happens but some of them went to Pharise- went to the Pharisees and told them of the things which Jesus done but to tattletales go on with me here just a little bit therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council this is let's get together here let's figure out what we're going to do with this guy and they were saying what are we doing But this man is performing many signs, i.e., he's doing things we can't explain. If we don't get rid of him, he's going to take our power away. Notice there's no concern that a dead man is alive. (laughs) How hard can your heart be? How hard can a man's heart be? And God has raised a man from the dead, given new life when one was dead. He did that to all of us. And they only think about getting rid of him. Notice the conversation that goes on here. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. As a church, we would say amen, <laughs> wouldn't we? Not these guys. They would believe in him. And the Romans will come and take forth our, both our place, that's what they're really after, and our nation. So what they're, they, they want their power, but they're going to use him politically because we don't get rid of this guy. You know, the nation could really suffer, and this is, this is really for the betterment of the nation. But one of them, here's Caiaphas, he's going to be a murderer of Christ, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Now listen to what comes out of this man, unknowing to him. Nor do you take into account that this is expedient for you that one man, look at this phrase here, one man die for the people, and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this, here's John's commentary, on his own initiative, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, what a statement. What a statement he was making. Now, he was not saying, oh, Christ has come and he's going to be a substitution for us, he's going to atone for our sins. No, he goes, let's sacrifice this guy so that we don't lose our power. But he didn't know what he was saying that the Lord Jesus would die in our place and bring all peoples into one family. And we will see God do that. Notice verse 53. So from that day on, this is, you want to know why Jesus is now on the road? He's got his chin set. He's headed to Jerusalem after he's been in hiding. Look what was getting planned here. So from that day on, they planned together to do what? Murder him. To kill him, that's the word that's their plan. Verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly. See, now now you're understanding why I'm bringing this out. Mark says that he's now on the road, he's out in front of the group, he is dead set heading for Jerusalem, but all along the other writers have been saying he's actually been in retreat. And so Jesus didn't walk publicly any longer. Verse 55, Um, tells us that the Passover of the Jews was near and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. And so they were seeking Jesus. People were looking for him. They're looking for him because they can't find him. He's been, he's hidden himself. He's been in that little triangle of Ephraim and Jericho and Bethany. He's been working in that area and staying away from the crowds. And they're kind of trying to figure out, verse 56, whether he's going to come up or not to the feast. But look at verse 57. For now the chief priests and Pharisees had given order that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. So it's a fascinating passage as you turn back to chapter 10 of Mark. And you begin to realize this little phrase. Jesus was walking out ahead of them, and they were amazed. He's been hiding himself for the last couple of months. Why is he doing that? Because he knows the hour. He knows the hour of his death. Can you imagine that? Knowing the hour of your death? That's pretty amazing. And then living. (laughs) It's one thing to be at the end of your life and your family's around you and they're setting flowers on your chest and you get a pretty good idea that this might be it. But to live your life and to walk straight toward your killers that's a whole other thing. And so Jesus is, is leading this pack. He's out in front of them. He's, notice his determination. It's clear, isn't it? He's headed back to Jerusalem. The verb shows that he had energy, he's walking briskly. <laughs> he is charging towards Jerusalem. And the Bible says his disciples were amazed. It was amazed. One little verse, I didn't have time to go all the way back, in John chapter 11, verse 16. Do you remember when the sisters sent word and and Jesus stayed a few extra days so that Lazarus was dead, good and dead? In John chapter 11, verse 16, this verse is said, therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, because he was a twin, remember that? We call him what? Doubting Thomas. Listen to what He says, they have, a, they have a pretty good idea what's going to happen, and yet they seem to forget things. The Bible says this, let us go also so that we may die with him. That's Mark chapter 11, verse 16. That's all before these events. Now Jesus is out in front of them. Thomas is made the statement, well, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to die. <laughs> I don't know if that's his negative attitude, or he was... Greatly loved Christ and was willing to go to death. It's a little bit difficult to tell. But isn't that amazing? We're going to Jerusalem to die. But then when he explains, particularly in this text, and we'll see with Luke's comparison, they didn't even know what he was talking about. As yet, they're amazed at him. And I love the scene here. Jesus is pushing forward. He knows the clear danger. He knows the hatred that waits him. And the disciples, knowing the threat of the religious leaders, they're struck by their master's silence. They're struck by his preoccupation with his thoughts as he marches on. And they're baffled and puzzled at him At somewhat at this. Is this how the kingdom, Is this, this isn't good. <laughs> you don't usher in a kingdom and we get to be on your left and your right. Doing this, why are you doing this? They're baffled at him. They're amazed at him. And they themselves, think about it, they are most likely scared, but they can't bring themselves to desert him yet. They're following a leader who's going to his cross, and they press on behind this determined leader. I think there's something very precious about this scene, as I thought about this. As his disciples, with thoughts of, well, we're going to be on your left, or we're going to be on your right, and who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, those thoughts going through through them, With blind devotion, they're following the Lord Jesus Christ. When you got saved, did anybody tell you, hey, by the way, you may have to take up your cross and die for Jesus? Most of the time we don't add that little tidbit, do we? We tell them about forgiveness of sin and Christ covering our sins. How, how they become part of a family and they'll walk with the Lord and, and you'll have true joy. Those are all wonderful things to say, but the fact is, the Bible says, take up your cross, crosses mean death, and follow me. And if any death we experience in this Christian life is often, often death to our personal agendas, we die to that. But brothers and sisters, you better believe that around this world, and you will hear next week, as Nilo's here, there's men and women dying for the faith. Do you understand that? Do you understand when God saved you, he gave you such a desire to follow him that you would lay down your life if he so asked? It's pretty precious, isn't it? And you may not understand that. I think why this is precious to me is I look at it and here's these 12 men walking behind him. Well, let's go to Jerusalem and die, but but I still want to be on his left and his right. And, and There's an ignorance to it, but they're still following him. And that, that's true in our, in our early lives in Christianity. We don't know all of this, right? Maybe you've just come to faith and you go, wow, it's a big book, Scott. All I know is I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. Praise the Lord. And now you're here and you go to church on Sunday and you're getting discipled and you're, you're in a BFG and you're in a small group or somebody's working with you and you're growing and, and you don't know all of what's going to happen. But you know what? You love your Savior and you're following him. And the more you know, the more you love him. Now, some of you have been here a little while or aged in Christianity. Have you plateaued? Are you still following a Savior that's headed to a cross? Are you willing to die for Christ? Have you got your life in order where you said, Lord, if you come now or you ask of my life, I'm ready for you. I mean, that's, that's what I think we're learning here. Yes, there's a blind faith in these men and going along with Jesus, and they've seen amazing things. They don't know how it's all gonna work out, but soon they are gonna understand it, and they are going to step into battles. Caiaphas, right there in this, the text in uh, John 11, Peter and John are gonna stand in a circle with him and his sons, the killers of Christ, and boldly proclaim Christ. Knowing that it could cost them their lives. That's transformation. That's growth. And so this is precious. I look at this, brothers and sisters, and I go, wow, look at these men following. Notice it says, and those followed were fearful. Now, it's an interesting little connection. And syntactically, the, 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 the sentence structure, when you, particularly in the original language, kind of shows you that it's actually a different group. So the second group is following behind the disciples. You have Jesus out in front. He's got his chin set. He's marching on towards Jerusalem. You have disciples kind of quickly pacing behind him. And behind that group is another group of fearful people. Now I think possibly, this is probably Martha and Mary and Lazarus and some of the other women and some family members and people who have definitely witnessed Lazarus' resurrection, I think they're in that group. And you go, well, why are they fearful? Well, I think this marks the tension of the coming showdown. (laughs) There's nobody probably in this group that doesn't know there's a trap waiting for him. They knew the tattletales. They knew people had run and said, Hey, we know where Jesus is. Here's what he did. They knew there's a trap waiting. And so there's a fearful tension here. And it's an interesting mix of people. Probably there's still people in there that don't really love the Lord Jesus, they just want healing, they want wealth, Um, they want to see a good fight. There could be some of those. There's some that are hungry. There's a lot of religious people probably in the group. Well, hey, look at me. I I did this all for my youth. And then there's some true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but everybody is fearful. This is not going to end well. There's men waiting in that town that hate this man that we're walking before, and somebody's going to die. And there's a tension there. This makes you remind us that there's all kinds of people in the, in, in the church that maybe come along in the church because they can maybe gain something or God will bless their business or you know I, I'll keep a fire insurance in my back pocket but they don't realize what waits some days God says in his word many are called but few are chosen many hear the message many know the gospel it's been preached so many times as my next point but there's a few And I pray that's you and me that say, oh God, I know who you are. I know what you've asked. I know what you've done and I will follow by your grace and by your mercy. Many are called, few are chosen. Point number two, the message of the cross is often repeated but seldom understood. The message of the cross is often repeated but seldom understood. Look at the latter part of verse 32. And again, Mark's repetition here, he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. After walking out front alone and setting this tone for what lies ahead, meditating on the will of God most likely as Jesus walked alone, Jesus senses the amazement and the fear of his followers. And he slows down, you can kind of see the scene here, don't you, and he gathers his disciples and he begins to give them details, report to them what lies ahead. There seems to be somewhat of a contrast. You look at one point, you see Jesus going ahead of them, and, and he's setting a pace, and he's making a statement. But now he seems to, to know the importance to, to stay and stop for a moment and gather his, his chosen disciples around him. Even though they're incomprehensive blindness, um, they can't understand what he's doing, he takes time to tell them what they're what he's doing. And I think this is the human side of Jesus we often see. He's desiring for his disciples to get it. Maybe you're kind of in slow growth in your Christian life, slower than you know you should be. You have a patient God. And this isn't an excuse to just kind of muddle along. <laughs> But we have a patient God, and I love this, that he does this. He, he knows what lies ahead. He is not unaware of anything that's going to take place, and you're going to see this because he's going to use eight verbs to tell you exactly what's going to happen to him. But he stops and says, my family needs to know. And he stops and he disciples them. He, sets a, he stops the pace and he begins to help them understand The Bible says, nevertheless, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. I think Jesus had set that tone and pace and it developed some tension there and he sensed that tension. But even in his determination, he stops to shepherd these people. Possibly Jesus was walking and contemplating what awaited him. I can imagine. He's he's fully human, right? Isn't he? He's fully God. He's fully human. So think about, in your humanity, You know that someone's going to brutally murder you. Would you not complicate that? Think through that. Now, he's God, and he knows he'll get through it. He knows the plan of God. He he wrote that down with the Father before the foundations of the world. But he's contemplating this. And yet, in the middle of that, this is why I love our Savior so dearly. In the middle of that, he stops to talk to his self-centered disciples who in the next phrase, next time we're together, we have needle next week, but the next week after that, we're gonna see them go, hey, we want you to do something for us. While you've been contemplating your own murder, we're trying to figure out who gets to sit on the left and the right. You, You and I go, what is wrong with these people? Our Lord stops and wants to explain to them. See the difference in him? See how why he's called the great shepherd? See why he cares for the weak? cares for us in our stupidity sometimes, in our arrogance. I can't help but study this text and love Jesus more. Because how many times has he stopped to talk to me through his word? See, I hope you see that today. Notice in verse 33, he says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. I love this. There's certain words when you study the language, you just love it. Behold means he's inviting Their intention. So he says, Behold, so he's inviting them to listen. But then he uses a plural pronoun, we. (laughs) Now he's inviting his disciples to that fateful, deadly trip to Jerusalem. He says, Listen, I want you to pay attention. We're going to do something that has been prepared for me. See, Mark doesn't record it here, but Luke does. Listen to Luke chapter 18, verse 31. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which were written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Ooh. So you want to know what they talked about? Turn with me to Psalms 22. So Luke gives us a little more insight that this is an Old Testament lesson. It's a lesson on the Messiah. It's a lesson on uh, his atoning work. It's bigger than the kingdom. And, and them sitting on the left or right, there's something that has to be done in order for them to be in the kingdom. Look with me at Psalms 22. Because doubtlessly, his passages like this, he took them to. Psalm 22, verse 6 through 8. Certainly the writer is David. Certainly there's a cry of anguish and, and there's a mixture of praising God. In verse 1, it's the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the, the phrase that he will cry out on the cross they, they, had, they, really, they knew David was going through something and there was a certain setting that this would have been in. But really, as they studied this passage, they could not quite get their mind around it. In fact, the piercing of hands and sides, there was not crucifixion. This is 700 years before the life of Christ. They don't know who this really is about. And certainly Jesus took them to this and showed where he would cry out. But verse 6, he says, but I am a worm and not a man. This is what you would feel like when you realized as they began to drive nails in you or spit on you or scourge you or all the things that took to Jesus, you would not feel like a person. Your dignity would be gone. You were stripped bare. And you were persecuted to the, to the brink of death. You would say this out loud, and here's what Jesus would be saying. I am a worm, I am not a man. I am reproach of men and despised by people. Wow, what a statement. All who see me, sneer at me. I said, I don't think we realize that scene on the cross, and we'll get to this in Mark as people walked by this man. To their mind's eye, that man is getting what he deserves. Let him rot there. They did not know who was hanging on the cross. They separate with lips, verse 7. They wag their heads, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you, right? You've saved others. Save yourself, Right? He's taking them to a history lesson of the Old Testament prophets who spoke to let them know what's going on. Drop down to verse eleven for the sake of time. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me; strong bulls of Bashan have bash encircled me. I'd love to give you the details on that from the ranching side, but we'll, we'll come back to that later. They open their mouths wide. Like, ra- like like, a raving and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. The blood is slowing down. The, the heart's struggling to pump the blood through his body. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shear of clay. If you mess with clay, it'll suck the moisture right out of your fingers, Right? He's dried up. There's nothing left to him. My tongue cleaves to to my jaw. You lay me down in the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me and the band of evildoers have encompassed me. You've pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. If you're an Old Testament theologian or you're an old testament scribe and studying this who would you attribute this to certainly there are some things attributed to david as he suffered but this was way beyond it. this is messianic this is talking about something greater than david and you imagine the lord jesus on that dusty road on his way to jerusalem taking that text and teaching it to them turn with me just quickly to isaiah 53 just as we work our way back At the end of 52, 13 through 15, there's a preview of Christ's humiliation and his exaltation. There's a few verses in there that talk about him being exalted for what he's done as he looks forward to the suffering, coming, exalted servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as you get into chapter 53, you begin to realize he's despised. Verse 3, he's forsaken. He's a man of sorrow. He's acquainted with grief. Like one whom you would hide your face He was despised and we did not esteem him. I mean, when when you saw Christ, you did not want to look at him unless you had some kind of gross problem, right? I mean, you were like, whoa. If you knew him and knew what he looked like, his human outside looked like, when he was on the cross, there was no resemblance of him by that time. Here, 700 years before the cross, It's this incredible description, verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him. By his scourgings we are healed, for all we like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. This is where I got the phrase that God judged him like he committed our sin. You've heard me say that here before? You'll hear it until I die, probably. God judged Christ like he committed our sins. Look at this verse with me. But the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And, of course, the text goes on, and you know it. And so there's this lesson going on. And think about this. Besides these main texts, think about all the prophecies that were true. His triumphal triumph entry, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. His enemies raging against him, Psalms chapter 2, 1 through 3 his friends deserting him cuz he dies alone Zechariah 13:7 his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver the average price for a slave in his day Zechariah chapter 11 verse 20 verse 12 him being lifted up Numbers chapter 1 8 through 9 that one of not one of his bones would be broken Psalms 34:20 is a reflection of the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 verse 46 that he would drink vinegar Psalms 69, 21, that his side would be pierced. Not only that we read in the Psalms, but in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, they someday, Israel, this remnant, will look upon the one they pierced. This is all prophecy. And they will, uh, they will rise and uh, he, that he will rise and be victorious. Psalm 16 teaches the resurrection of Christ and that he would ascend to a place of honor at the right hand of the Father. Psalms 110. These are all prophecies, and there's just a few I gave you. This is the message of the cross. I said the message of the cross is is often repeated but seldom understood. And at the end of this text, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. How many people, even maybe in this room, or people you know, have heard a clear presentation of the gospel and walk away and don't receive it? It happens all the time. It was true in the Old Testament. It was true on the road to Jerusalem, and it's true today. The message is put out there. The teaching is there. The instruction of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done is clear. But few are chosen. Number three, the Son of Man suffered as our substitute. The Son of Man suffered as our substitute. Look as you go back to Mark chapter 10, the middle of verse 33. He says, And the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes we'll be content, we'll, uh, and will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later he will rise. Well, what's striking about this text is several things. One, he calls himself the son of man and I am so grateful he uses that term because that connects him to you and I. Somebody has to die in our place. Do you understand that? And so he's not the son of God here, although he is the son of God. He's not the creator and a sustainer of life, which he is, but here in this text, he is the son of man because he's representing you and me. It's man, God-man, Jesus Christ who would go. Hebrews 2 says, therefore, since children of the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took part in it. Amen. And you've heard me say this before, you can't kill God, so he became a man. So he could be our substitute. What a statement. What an amazing thing. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5-6 through six says, there, For there is one God, we do not believe in plurality of gods, we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, And so Paul says this, for there is one God, one mediator, also between God and men, the man. (laughs) I love that phrase. We talk about, yeah, man, he's the man. No, he's the man. The man, Christ Jesus, the text says. And then verse 6 says this, who gave himself as a ransom for us, the testimony given at a proper time. Can you see what's going on in this dusty road as he stops and turns to these 12 disciples who are lost in their view of really what's happening here, and he's telling them what's going to happen to them and how it's going to happen in eight amazing future verbs. And they miss it all. Only a perfect man could suffer a perfect death in our place. And he suffered at the hands of his own people Notice the text says that he would be brought, he would be delivered before the Sanhedrin, as really it is, by the chief priests and scribes. Dying is one thing, but the Jews had lost their ability for capital punishment. The Romans had taken it away, so they could not not put someone to death. They had to hand that over. So the text says they handed him over to the Gentiles. And I think this is what adds further terror to the disciples and those who are following Jesus. There was no greater disgrace than for your own people to reject you and let your enemies brutalize you and kill you. There was nothing worse in society to let that your own country said, we don't like you, we don't want you, we're gonna give you to the people who hate us and let them brutalize you and kill you. It was the worst disgrace you could ever have. And so that little phrase, when you look in your Bibles there, and it says that they would hand him over to the Gentiles, what an amazing statement, what they did to our Lord Jesus. These verses, though, are remarkable, and time doesn't permit me, but I want to show you these eight future verbs here. They're all future tense. And when we talk about the future tense, this doesn't mean simply that there's something going to happen a little ways out. Certainly it does mean that. But future tense implies since the certainty and the nearness in this case. So when he speaks in future tense, he's saying, this is with certain what is going to happen. Notice these verbs. Look in your Bible. Number one, in verse 33, I will be delivered, will be delivered him. How does it say that? Um, the Son of Man will be delivered. Will be delivered And this, as we've said, was terrifying. The Jews knew what it meant to be delivered over to Babylon, to Assyrians, to Greeks and Medes and Persians. They knew what that meant. And so here Jesus speaks to them on the side of this road, says, "I will be delivered. I'll be handed over." That was terrifying to them. Number two, he says, "We'll be condemned, i.e. death sentence. It was written above his head, nailed on that cross. They will give me a death sentence. Will he will be condemned? The fear of impending death, and not they're going to stick some drug in your vein because you murdered somebody, and you're going to quickly just kind of quietly go to sleep and die. This is a brutal death of hanging on the cross for hours while being mocked. The next one says, they will hand you over. We've talked about that briefly, but what's one more thought? This handing over means no justice given to vile men waiting to brutalize you. And you remember, and we'll see this again, he gets put into those soldiers' hands and they brutalize him. Mock him, it's a joke. Oh, they call you the king of Jews, let's put a purple robe on you. Next one They get worse as it goes, brothers and sisters. This is what our Lord has done for us. Mock. We'll mock him. Future tense. We'll mock him. This is godless ridicule. Brutal trickery. Blind him, slug him, and then say, oh, prophesy now who hit you. Remember, this is what they do. Notice the next one. We'll spit on him. Number five. You say, well, I really wouldn't like that, but do you know what spitting on in the old world meant? It meant you were defiled. This isn't just someone mad at you and spits at you in some rude way. This is done for defilement. This is to make you unclean before God. This is far beyond just some immature soldier. This is people spitting on him to defile him before God, make him unclean. Number six, we'll scourge him. We know these whips They were whips that contained shards of glass and bone and rock and metal that were used to lift the skin away from the body and to cause great, great scarring and pain. Seven will kill him. This is murder. This is a premeditated murder. They have been plotting to kill him now for months, if not years, since he's been ministering. Matthew 20, verse 19, says they will crucify him so they knew exactly what they wanted done. Number eight, and thank the Lord for the eighth future verb here, and he will rise from the dead. On the side of the road, with determination heading for Jerusalem, he goes through the clearest detail of what's going to happen to him. I will beat death. Just like I raised Lazarus from the dead, I have have the power over death. And I will raise from the dead. And I will raise in the approval and satisfaction of my Father. I will be your propitiation as I rise from the dead. See, this is a complete package. When you look at these eight verbs, this is the complete package. Everything we need to be cleansed from all of our unrighteousness and to give us a perfect standing with the Father and note in there, there's nothing of your own work. Nothing. Jesus does it all. Eight verbs. I challenge you to look at those eight verbs this week. Think about your Lord. Think about what he's accomplished for you. This event takes place Exactly as they are listed. It says this it's Christ's own prophecy of the Old Testament prophecy about himself. Because he's God. I read several commentaries on this. Liberals deny the accuracy because it's too accurate. One last verse before we move to communion. Go to first Peter chapter one with me and we'll close there. 1 Peter chapter 1 because I want you to know that we reject the liberal's thinking because this is our all-knowing savior who knew exactly what was coming because him and the father wrote it down before the foundations of the world <laughs> which is even more staggering that he would leave heaven for us but he does and I want to show you this 1 Peter chapter 1 Peter now gets it right on the road to Jerusalem Peter's one of the 12 that doesn't understand as Mark said uh, excuse me as Luke records we're going to see that in a moment but, but now he does right he has full, full eyes and hearts the spirit is in his life and flowing right and so he knows the truth First Peter chapter 1 verse 18 following knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold notice the list of eight nothing about payment from us you don't get salvation by your own works You can't buy it you can't trade for it and notice where this problem came from. From the, futili- the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That's depravity. You got that from your parents. They got that from their parents. They got that from their parents. And it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. We are born sinners. We're born separated from God. But notice verse 19. But with precious blood. Jesus has already accounted for that in those eight years future tense verbs but with his precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless perfect impeccable is the theological term we use for jesus christ he's impeccable the blood of christ for he was foreknown before the foundations of the world this was not a surprise to him him and the father knew exactly what they were doing they wrote this together and our triune god had to put a plan to rescue us but, was, but notice this, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And I think you should read that as you. Not somebody else, not the disciples, not these people in this ancient world. He appeared for you. I hope you own that verse. He appeared for me, who through him are believers in God. There is only one way to the Father, and it's through the Christ alone, faith alone, Grace alone. We hold to that. There's no other way. And Peter sums that up. Who through him are believers in God. Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. So that your faith and your hope are in God. I.e. not in yourself. Not in your church. Not in your good works. Not in your own bloodlines. And all the other things we try to bring to God. Our faith is in God. As we close out this message. Mark mentions nothing of the disciples' reaction to these eight verbs. He just doesn't put it in there. But Luke does, and let me just read you. So I want you to end with this: Luke chapter eighteen, verse thirty-four. But the disciples understood none of these things. And so stop right there. Did you? Did you understand those eight verbs that I talked about? Did you say, "I don't like any of that," but I get, I understand what they did. A lot of nodding heads. Isn't that beautiful? You understand. Why? Because God chose you to, from, from the foundations of the world to give you salvation, to put your spirit within you. So when you heard the gospel preached, he would open your mind and your heart and you would be saved. <laughs> but not these guys. At this time, they have no spirit within them yet. They haven't received the, the spirit that resides with ever at the time of salvation. They're gonna walk into this age. They're gonna come to this age. And they're going to receive this, but they don't have it now. And so Luke goes on to say, And the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things at all, at all that he said. But praise the Lord, we do. And they did. And if you want to see these men's response, Midas, Judas, start reading the book of Acts. (laughs) Because they believe it, and they're ready to die for Jesus. Amen. Amen. Father, three short verses, but... Packed full of truth. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for walking on that road. Thank you for walking ahead of us. Lord, we can't even imagine trying to do this on our own. They could nail us on a thousand crosses and we could never inherit salvation. That you, Lord Jesus, knew exactly what you were doing. You were headed for a cross that only you could bear. Only you could be the sacrifice. Only you could be the substitute. Only you could please the Father on your perfect life and your perfect death. Hmm. Sobering, Lord. But that in the same time, we rejoice that you did it. And so, Lord, thank you for opening our eyes and our hearts to what you've done. Lord, I pray for those right now that are here, maybe those listening online or those that will yet to hear this message. God, I pray that you would open their hearts now, right where they're at, Lord. There's no need to walk aisles and raise hands. Our God knows this. And so, Lord, please move in their heart now, Lord. Let them receive Christ and then tell everyone they know that they have a Jesus who went before them who accomplished everything they need. And Lord, may you do that today. For those of us that know you as our Savior, Lord, may this strengthen us. This is a great Sunday school lesson, but Monday school's coming, Lord. And we gotta live tomorrow for you, Lord. We want to live for you tomorrow. So I pray that this just is not a Sunday message, Lord. May this dig deep into our hearts, our souls, Lord. And we will give you the praise for changed lives. In Jesus' name, amen.